So I have a bit of a confession to make. It has very little to do with taking over Randy's office for two weeks. But uh, I have, for as long as I can remember, had a bit of an addiction in my life. And I don't know how many of you have had the same struggle. But um, ever since I was a kid, I have been addicted to the game Monopoly. Anybody else? Come on, show of hands. How many else just absolutely love this game, all right? So there are a few of us. And uh, it, it's, you know, it's kind of gotten, well, it's gotten bad. Uh, when Elizabeth and I were just uh, poor interns in Chicago uh, several years ago, we, uh, we came to Valentine's Day, and we really didn't have money to do much for Valentine's Day. So we went to the mall and said, 10 bucks. You know, you can buy anything you want at the mall for 10 bucks. That was kind of our romantic Valentine's Day uh, that year. So she bought me the most heartfelt romantic gift she's ever given me. This is called the Monopoly Companion Guide, Okay. <laughs> This book has uh, strategies and tips and fact sheets. I mean, did you know that with two six-sided dice, you are most, statistically, you are most likely to roll a seven? Uh, and then on either side of that, a six or an eight, and then your chances go down. That helps when you're, you know what, it doesn't matter. Um, well, it got to the point then that she wouldn't play with me anymore. So I had to take matters into my own hands, and I got Monopoly for my Nintendo 64. Okay, that way I didn't need her anymore when I wanted to play a game of Monopoly, all right? And, uh, and then it keeps going. Um, I, I got the CD-ROM so that I could play online with Elizabeth's dad and brother. I even found at Borders one day uh, a great business book called Everything I Know About Business I Learned from Monopoly. And, uh, and then I have a, uh, the money clip that I use and a keychain. and uh, you know. Anyway, um, here's the reason that I love Monopoly so much. Because, I, because Monopoly is all about me. Really, I can scheme, and, and I can maneuver, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know how many of you are like me where we're kind of salesmen, and it's like, you know, you work your Jedi mind tricks on the people you're playing against, like, you want to give me that property, just, just hand it on over, you know. And, and Monopoly, if I win, it's a game where I can say, look how good I am. I mean, look at this. I took what I had. We all started equally, and I made it into something incredible, and I'm just that good. And then if I lose at Monopoly, you can just say, oh, I got crummy dice rolls. You know, the game's rigged anyway. It's all chance. Who cares? Okay? <laughs> when Randy asked me last fall um, if, I, if I would be open to speaking for a couple weeks in the main service, I kind of said, oh, Randy, you know, and um, I'm doing my master's degree in the spring. I take uh, several hours of master's work, and, you know, we're planning for the summer, and we've got our own teen service that goes on over across the lobby and stuff. I just don't know. And, and he said, well, that's okay. That's fine. I just thought since we were doing a study of James that you might, and I said, okay, 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 when do you want me? Um, because I don't know about you, but for me, um, there are stories from the Bible that have had a lot of impact on my life. There are verses that I walk around with memorized on a regular basis, but no single book of the Bible has impacted my Christian faith more deeply than the book of James. It is just a book of the Bible where James just calls it like it is and challenges us to be sold out in our faith. Well, we're going to be in James 4 today if you want to turn there. And uh, that's, if you've got a Bible from the chair in front of you, that's page 856, James 4, right at the end of your Bible. And I, I hope that you have been around um, these last several weeks when Randy's been talking about putting faith into action and the role of faith and deeds, taming your tongue and where wisdom comes from and all that kind of stuff. And I'm privileged to share with you for just a couple of weeks as the series kind of is coming to a close to get ready for Easter. 
But in James 4, starting at verse 13, here's what he says. James 4, 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Those are some pretty strong words for us, aren't they? In fact, I want to take a look at those first two verses again. Okay, verse 13 and 14. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears and then vanishes. Here's what I wonder. Do you think, and I imagine that we're all guilty of this in some way or another, do you think that at times we just wish our lives away? And here's what I mean by that. I mean, I think this starts when we are kids. We live the first 15 years of our lives with one goal in mind. Okay, the first 15 years of our lives are built up to get a driver's license, right? That is all we can think about because we know, in our heads at least, that once I get a driver's license, I can do anything I want. You know, I can go anywhere I want. My parents' stupid rules won't apply to me anymore. I can do anything I want once I just get that license. Uh, For me, uh, my 16th birthday was probably like the whiniest day of my entire life. Uh, My birthday is in early September, so every so often it falls on Labor Day. And the year that I turned 16, it just happened to do that. So all my friends are out driving their cars and stuff like that. I'm sitting at home having a pity party for myself on my 16th birthday because it happened to hit on a holiday. But see, at some point, that kind of new car smell wears off of having a driver's license, and we begin looking forward to the next step, right? We think, when I can just get out of school, when I can just be in college, life will be so much better and so much easier. And then we get to college, and a lot of us have a lot of fun. A lot of us have too much fun, but, but a lot of us have fun those first few years in college. And all of a sudden, we find out, man, this is hard, there are all these tests and these papers i got to write. Nobody's telling me I have to study all night. I actually have to figure out that I have to study and take care of things. And we start to think ahead and we think, man, when I get out of school, that's when life will get easier and slower paced. You know, when I could just get done with this college degree, everything will be fine and I won't have anything to worry about. And we get out of school, we get in our young years and we think, man, I'm just, I'm lonely. I mean, if I were married, then my life would be complete. You know, if I could just find a spouse, then that person would complete me and I would never be lonely again and everything would be perfect. And we wish away our single years. And then we get married and we have kids, or we get married and we say, man, when we have kids, that's when our family will be whole and complete. And then we have kids and we find out that's not true at all, right? Okay? (laughs) But, But we, you know, we start in the early years of our kids and we say, when they can just talk, that's when our house will be great. What idiots we are, right? (laughs) Why do we wish that our kids will start talking? But we wish away their young years thinking someday we'll be able to coach for them and someday they'll be a little more independent when they have a license. Someday we will kick them out of the house and we can finally enjoy each other's company again, right? And we we think this is going to be so great. And we get to that empty nester stage and we think, okay, just a few more years and then we can retire and then we can just do anything we want anytime we want. And here's my fear. I wonder if some of us spend 60 or 70 years constantly looking forward and then spend the last 15 or 20 years of our lives doing nothing but looking back. 
I mean, I wonder if we spend all this time thinking the next stage, the next stage, the next stage, and then we get to retirement, and all we do is reminisce about how we wish we could do it all over again. You know, James has really convicted me um, in about the last 12 months or so in this idea that until you stop living for tomorrow, you will never fully enjoy all that God has planned for you today. Until you stop living constantly focused on the next stage of life, you will never experience all that God has in store for you in this one. Ask yourself this question, am I ever fully present? I mean, really, am I ever fully present? Because how many of us spend our hours at work thinking, oh, I wish I could be home more. I wish I didn't have to work so much. I wish I didn't have to be involved in this stupid meeting or this project or this whatever. If I could just be home, things would be so much better. And we end up spending the whole day thinking about being home. And what do most of us do when we get home? We crack open our laptop to have work email or our phones going off or whatever's happening. And what we do is we communicate to everybody in our house, I wish I were still at work, to be honest with you. And I have to tell you that, I, that if anybody in this room right now needs to hear this, it's me. Because I'm one of the worst about this. You know, I get paid for a first shift job to work with second shift teenagers, basically. You know, and so it's very tempting for me to have one of these things just going off all the time. You know, checking Facebook, checking emails, sending text messages, doing all those things. And every so often I get an opportunity to, to teach undergrad students about youth ministry. And I've been sharing a principle with them for about four years now. And it's just finally starting to take hold in my own life. And that is that at the end of my time in my job at least. Okay, we'll talk about me. But, but at the end of my time in youth ministry, let's say that I am unbelievably privileged. God just blesses things. And in the course of 20 years of youth ministry, we get to be a part of reaching 2,000 teens for Christ. That would be incredible, but if it happens at the expense of the two in my house, then it doesn't matter at all. Are you ever fully present? Okay, do you buy into the line that 30 minutes of work tonight will save me three hours of work tomorrow? Okay, if I just do a little bit to get ahead, it'll save me so much tomorrow and I'll be ahead. What if you could look forward 10 or 15 years and find out that your 30 minutes of work at night in your house once a, once a day or once every couple of days or whatever, what if you knew that those little 30 minutes that you stole from your family then might cost you the teen pregnancy of a daughter someday? might cost you the drug addiction partying lifestyle of a teenage son. Would you still think it was worth it to get ahead just a little bit? Are you ever fully present? The job that I was at before I came here, I still look back and I can't believe the way I live, but, but I, I, I wanted to do nothing but impress a boss that I had. So I would work as late as I could possibly work every day. I would get home, and the first thing I would do before I would really see anybody or say anything is I'd crack open my laptop, let email pile all night long, and do as much work as I possibly could. In fact, every holiday that came around, I made sure I sent my boss an email about something just so that he knew I cared so much about my job. I was working on Christmas and Thanksgiving and all that other stuff. And one day I realized that I was living to impress a boss who had already forsaken relationships with his own kids because of how much he worked. 
And I'm looking ahead saying, if I don't want this to be me, then why am I following in these footsteps? Now, it might help us to understand a little bit who James writes these words to. Okay, when he says, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city or that city. Um, when he says that, understand that the first century world's very, very different than what we live in today. Okay, people didn't decide to go to college a couple states away and then move halfway across the country for a job and then fly home a couple times a year, right? There were no $59 each way tickets to, you know, from Bloomington to Orlando to go to Disney for the weekend or whatever, right? Travel was something people only did if they had wealth. So when he says, you know, you who say tomorrow you'll go here, you'll go there, he's talking to wealthy merchants, who were so consumed by their wealth that that it took over every other part of their lives. See, there were people who were so concerned about money that they forgot about everything else. Man, it's good that we've learned so much by the 21st century, huh? There's a study that was done in the 90s, and they asked Americans, what would make you happier? Okay? Wherever you're at now, what would make you a couple steps happier in life? And of Americans who were surveyed, 32%, so about a third of us said, if I were smarter, I would be happier. And 48%, so half of the Americans who were asked this question said, if I were just rich, I would be happy. Apparently, uh, as Americans, we figured we don't have to be smarter as long as we're rich, right? I mean, then it doesn't matter how smart we are. We can just have all the money we want. What is it that defines your life? Is it the job you work? I mean, is that the thing that you are just all about and all consumed by in life? That you have to have this job, you can't do anything else. This is the thing that that your life is all about. Is it your kids? Because unfortunately, I can tell you what it looks like when parents raise kids and and everything is about those children. They take care of their every wish and they attend to their every possible need. We get those kids just a little bit later in student ministry and the picture is not pretty, okay? Is it being the life of the party? What is it that defines your life? There's a book that we talked a little bit about in December with our teenagers, and it's by a pastor named Francis Chan. Uh, And the book is called Crazy Love, and we challenged, we told our teenagers that we really think that every, honestly, I think that every Christian today should read um, this book. I think this book would, it's like the book of James in the Bible. It would really, really challenge your faith. Crazy Love by Francis Chan, just an excellent book. And he asked this question. He says, if tomorrow you suddenly stop believing in God, would there be any real change in how you live? I mean, in the way that you spend your money, and the priorities that you live for. If tomorrow you went to work and you didn't believe in God anymore, would anyone at your workplace even notice? Would anyone in your school notice? Would your neighbors see anything different? Would the way you raise your kids, the activities that you're involved in, would anything change? Because understand something. If tomorrow you suddenly stop believing in God forever, And the biggest change that took place in your life was all of a sudden you got to sleep in on Sunday mornings, then your faith doesn't define who you are. Your faith is not what you are all about. James says in verse 14, you are a mist. And what he's saying is making plans without God is craziness because our life is transitory. I mean, think about how fast life moves now. Did you think five years ago that you would be where you are today? 
I mean, if I had told you five years ago you were going to be sitting in this chair on a Sunday morning here in this community, would you ever have thought that's what you were doing with your life? Or look back 10 or 15 years. Okay, if we don't have an anchor in our life that holds us still in the midst of life that changes and moves and goes, then we will be swept away by the current. Verse verse 15 says this, Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Now, I'll tell you what, I will speak hypothetically for a moment, okay? I won't talk about anybody in this room or anyone on this stage. We'll talk about the people who didn't show up to church today, okay? Those are the ones we'll convict with this, all right? So, hypothetically speaking, I wonder how many of us are truly concerned with God's will for our lives. Deep down inside, at some core level, I wonder how many of us are truly concerned with God's will. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? If there was a Facebook group out there called, um, let's see, called When God's Will Intersects with What I Already Wanted to Do Anyway, I think that a lot of us will become fans of that. Okay? I think that a lot of us could really get behind a group like that, that you know, when God's will intersects with what I already intended to do, life is sweet. I feel really good about what I'm doing because I don't have to change at all. It's great. Okay? I think this even, you can see this in the way we pray. How many of us pray prayers like this? Okay? We say, God, you are in control. You are amazing. You are in charge. And uh, so, God, here is the decision that I'm, I'm about to make which really is code to God for. I've already planned on doing this, just so you know, FYI. Um, God, this is the decision that I think you're leading me to because I want it. And um, so if it's not your will, which, which is basically code for I'm pretty much going to do this unless you make my car break down on the way to do it. But if this is not your will, then in the next 17 minutes, show me your plan before I sign the dotted line. Okay? All right, good. And we come, we come to God that way, or we do it like this, okay? We say, God, I know that you have called me um, to be your ambassador uh, of light in a dark and dreary world. And so, God, I will um, take one for the team, and if you call me to, to date the, the um, gorgeous-looking person in the first row of my Biology 201 class, then I will do that for you, God. So show me your will by having him look at me now. Okay, God, show me your will by having him look now, you know. God, show me your will. Oh, yes, yes, looked at me, you know. And we do this in our relationship with God because here's the deal. I don't like being told no all that much. I don't know about you, but I don't like to hear no. And to be honest, I don't want much of God's plan if it means I have to change or do something I'm really uncomfortable with. So much of the time, we just barrel ahead at 100 miles an hour at the thing that we want with no eye for what God might be calling us to or leading us to or his bigger plan in our lives. Most of the time, what I do is I ask God to bless my will, not to show me his. There's a book uh, called The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership. And it's a book by a guy named Stephen Sample, who's the president of USC for a while. And Sample says this. He gives this principle called artful procrastination. And the idea basically is um, that he never made a decision today he could reasonably put off until tomorrow. 
meaning that, you know, maybe more information would come in, we would learn something new, somebody would have another solution or whatever. Never make a decision today that could reasonably put off, be put off until tomorrow. And I think that has huge implications for us in terms of our faith. Because I think, there's a, I think there could be a spiritual aspect to this. That what if you started living in such a way that you never made a decision today that reasonably you could have prayed about until tomorrow? That you could have spent time seeking wise counsel, talking to someone else, praying about it, and seeing if this is really what God had intended for your life. Never make a decision today that could be reasonably prayed about till tomorrow. And I know what you're saying, okay? Well, you don't understand. I mean, things are so fast-paced. Honestly, look at your life and say, how often do I really have to make that decision now? And oftentimes when I have to make that decision now, I could have been thinking about it before. I just put it off, and now I'm backed into a corner, and I have to do that. Okay, listen, planning is not the problem. Contributing to your 401k is not evil. The problem comes. The problem comes when, when we scheme without listening to God. When we scheme and we devise our own plans and we ignore where he is leading us in life. And when James says that boasting about tomorrow is evil, understand, okay, the Greek language is a very rich language. There are a lot of other terms he could have used besides evil. But he uses this word to let us know that there is a sin issue here. That when we just do whatever we want, whenever we want, and then we brag about how great life is and how things are going our way, there is a sin issue between us and God. What concludes this section with verse 17, he says this, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Do you catch the implication here? Because we live a lot of our lives against the don'ts, right? There's some 613 different commands in the Old Testament, and a lot of our Christian lives are lived against all the don'ts that God said. You know, don't sleep with your girlfriend. Don't make personal copies at work. Uh, Don't cuss too much, right? Don't get drunk in public. Like we add all these caveats to the things we know we shouldn't do, but we kind of want to do, but we know that God really said we shouldn't do them anyway, okay? We basically say, as long as I keep up with all the don'ts in life, then I'm good. Then everything's fine. And my question is, what if James is telling us that life is more about the things you do than the things you don't do? What if life is less about the things you avoid and more about the way you live? This has deeply affected the way we teach teenagers in collision. In fact, we're just, this is the very last week of, uh, of our relationship series. And we do this every February because we know teens are thinking about relationships and Valentine's Day and all that kind of stuff. And so we're concluding a series this week. And when we teach teens, we feel like so much of their life says don't, 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 don't. And we try to explain to them the reason for the things and that God actually wants them to do certain things. We say that, that God doesn't want you to stay pure in your teenage years because he wants to take away your fun. God wants you to enjoy the best relationship possible, the best physical relationship in a marriage. And the way that that happens is staying pure in your teenage years. We say it's not that God wants you to miss out on partying so that you can be some boring Christian. Okay, God wants you to be fully present for him, able to do what he calls you to anytime and not under the influence of anything else. How would your life be different if you stop living based on the don'ts? You started living and experiencing all that God has planned for you to do. 
What if God is more concerned with how you live than what you stay away from? I have to tell you, um, my family has been a part of the Windsor Road family for three years now. And we've had some exciting times where, you know, in the fall of 07, we started Collision in Route 56, and it's been neat. Uh, but the last six months in, in the history of this church are the, are the ones that I have been most excited about ever. Um, starting around the time of weekend of service and the impact that was had in the community and all the different things that are going on, just the general vibe and excitement and growth and all those things that are happening. But you need to understand this. This church will never grow wider unless you grow deeper. Or think of it in terms of spiritual maturity, okay? The collective spiritual maturity of this place will never advance past your own spiritual maturity. God doesn't need you to scheme to get your will pushed through. He needs you to be patient and seek his will. God doesn't need you to shout your will at him. God needs you to listen for his. Let's pray. God, you are, you are just incredible. That you give us life and you give us breath. God, you give us choice. God, help us to choose our relationship with you. God, help us to follow you. Help us not to be so consumed by our own selfish desires that we miss out on your plan and your purpose. God, help us to live for you. And help us to take time on a regular basis to simply listen for what it is that you are calling us to in life. Amen. The ushers are going to come forward and pass communion. And, and for some of you, this may be a time where you just need to confess a little bit with God and say, God, <laughs> we haven't been that close lately and it's not your fault. Or maybe what you need is to just spend some time saying, all right, God, speak. I'm here. I'm listening. What is it that you're calling me to in life? What is it you want me to do next? Whatever that is, we just want you to spend some quiet time reflecting on what God's will for your life might look like.